Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are holy. You are set apart. You are enthroned above all things and everywhere we look from the smallest creature to the biggest natural wonder to the tallest skyscraper reminds us that you are a God who is intricately powerful beyond our wildest imaginations. But the real kicker is that you, the unfathomable, unknowable in an exhaustive sense, God has chosen to speak to us in your word. You've chosen to live among us through the person of Jesus Christ and you dwell in us who have faith in your son through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, it is with profound mystery and divine power that we seek to understand your word today and we pray that it will accomplish all it seeks to do. Leading us all to repentance and worship, application and love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen once wrote a little fable. Uh, Perhaps you've heard it's called The Emperor's New Clothes. And the topic of this fable was this emperor who had a keen obsession for his style. He liked to look good. He liked to have good clothes. And there were these traveling uh, weavers who came into his kingdom, and they offered to make the world's most majestic and regal clothing. But they had a special power. And that power was that these clothes would be invisible to those who were unfit for their position, out of place, or foolish. And so the king heard this wonderful meeting of multiple needs. He could be dressed to the nines in the best apparel money could buy. Meanwhile, all he had to do was wear these clothes, walk through his city, and if people said, hey, emperor, you're wearing nothing, the king knew right away that that person should not be employed, that that person was a fool, and that person was unfit for duty. And so the king hired these weavers who we know were conmen. There's nothing special about this. But as the king began to boast about this apparel that he was wearing, excitement grew throughout the kingdom. And the king would send some of his men to go examine the weaver's work. And so people would go and they'd see the weavers. They'd have the loom set up. They'd be working night and day tirelessly in the shop. But when people opened the door and gazed in, the looms were empty and there were no clothes. But then they realized, perhaps I'm the fool. I shouldn't let anyone know. And so what do they do? They go back to the emperor and they say, your majesty... They are beyond your wildest imaginations. They are staggeringly beautiful. You alone are the one fit for these sort of robes and riches. And then the big day came where the weavers had completed their task that they were working tirelessly for. And they bring the emperor down and they have him stripped down and they put these clothes on him. And the emperor himself realizes, I'm naked but then he too believes the lie. And he says, if people knew that I were a fool, they would no longer respect me as emperor. And so as they fitted him with nothing, the day finally came for the kingdom to be introduced. And this is what Anderson says as he concludes the story. He says, so off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. And everyone in the streets and windows said, oh, how fine are the emperor's new clothes. Don't they fit him to perfection and see his long train? Nobody would confess. They couldn't see anything. For that would prove him either unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a success. But he hasn't got anything on, a little child said. Did you ever hear sons? Such innocent prattle, said its father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. A child says, he hasn't anything on. But he hasn't got anything on, the whole town cried at last. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right. 
But he thought, the procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. Now, in a wonderfully ironic way, the point is very visible, isn't it? That there is no greater fool than the one who thinks he is dressed splendidly only to walk nakedly through the streets. And today we hear one of Jesus' most popular and seemingly simplest commands. That is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And under this banner is the banner of love. Jesus opens up this teaching with what is perhaps one of the most widely agreed upon and celebrated commands in all of human history, religious or not. Love your enemies. Our world loves talking about this kind of love. We put it on our yard signs. We sing about it in our songs. We post it on our social media. We preach about it in our churches. Yet I wonder what the examination of a child might show about our clothes. Do we have puffed out chest and rolled up robes only to walk out into a world naked thinking we are clothed? When we zoom out, what do we actually see? What are you wearing? We live in a world where it's no secret. It's actually publicly out there where billion-dollar social enterprises like Facebook and Twitter hire the brightest minds and employ the most powerful algorithms in order to capitalize on your anger and on your hatred online. We could turn on the news and we see tragic battlefields like Buffalo, New York this week or the Supreme Court debate and its leaks. But the bloodshed isn't limited there, is it? We turn on our news and open up our browsers and we see different sides lobbing grenades at each other, hoping to sterilize the public square of any sort of dissension. I got ballots mailed to me this past week and ballots are no longer places of competing ideologies for the mutual good, working to the same end of a collective society. Instead, they are battle lines that are drawn between those who are our brothers and sisters and those who are our sworn enemies. And isn't it interesting that in a world where love abounds, it seems that we have an increasingly abounding category of enemies. And in light of our text today, I want us to soberly ask our own hearts, what are you wearing? What does your love look like? And does it look like Jesus' view of love explained here in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36? Or does it look like the rampant nakedness of love embraced by our world? And what's interesting, as we begin to consider these questions, Jesus immediately cuts off our train of thought. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice his first words in Luke 6, 26. Jesus says, but to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Do you notice Jesus' audience? To you who hear. Jesus already shows he's not after your thoughts on their love. He's not after your thoughts on the love you see others exhibiting on Facebook. He's not after the loveliness of those who have harmed you. He is after your love. He is after your thoughts. He is after your assessment. Do you love your enemies? Do you do good to those who hate you? Are you generous to those who wish to take from you? In one sense, what you're going to read today is probably nothing new in terms of its content, which makes it profoundly dangerous. The clarity of this text is our problem. It is dangerous in that knowing it, having read it, perhaps even memorizing it, you might think that you have believed it, you have practiced it, and you have done it. And yet, where are your clothes? But despite the danger of this text, there is hope for those who are lost in a naked and loveless world. And that hope is seen in Jesus' contrast in this text, and that is this that Christians love differently. Disciples of Jesus love differently. Why? Because Christians have been loved differently. 
True love, enemy love, biblical love, gospel love is only for those who have eyes to see the miracle of mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is our big picture point today is that gospel love is a humble view of self and a a clear view of salvation. If we want to see what we ourselves are wearing, we must see a humble view of self and a clear view of salvation. And we're going to address this in Jesus' words today in three ways. First, I'm going to give us a preface. And that's because when we hear texts like this, our brains race to places. We have misunderstandings, misapplications, and misconceptions. And we need to make sure we're all on the same page. After some preface remarks, we will examine a humble view of self, verses 27 through 31. And then in verses 32 through 36, we'll see a clear view of salvation. So I want to begin with kind of a preface on this text, and for us to best understand why we need these introductory remarks, I'm going to read the whole of our text for us once more. This is the word of the Lord from Luke 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. So three quick Notes I have as a preface to this text. First is that this is a political message. Now I spent all week preparing for this sermon, ready to get up here and say my first preface remark is this is not a political message. But remember, we are in the middle of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, to his followers. This teaching begins where we saw last week in Luke 6.20 and look at how Jesus opens this sermon. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is a political message. It is for those who belong to the kingdom of God. It is for the polis of redemption. For those who are ruled by King Jesus, this, this language of love becomes our binding constitution. We are governed by it. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are called to live life on this earth as a citizen of another kingdom. And we then are to be glimpses of what life is like in God's final kingdom. When you encounter a wonderful southerner up here in the north who has a drawl, you're encountering a glimpse into a kingdom, right? There's a place where everyone talks like this. When we Christians live out the reality of our life, though we are displaced, we are showing people what life is like in a kingdom where there is no hatred, where there is no abuse, where there is no mistreatment, where there is no theft, where there is no violence. But there's a big difference between being a citizen of a kingdom who is displaced, which is us right now, and living in the kingdom of God. This world is not the kingdom of God. This church is not the kingdom of God. Though I hope that in this church, it looks more like the kingdom of God than it does the kingdom of the world. This is not the kingdom of God because this is not as good as it gets. In the kingdom of God, there'll be no hate. There'll be no harm. There'll be no hostility. But those are daily realities for us here on earth. And in order to help mitigate those harmful effects of sin, this side of heaven, God has established governments. He's established courts and authorities to limit harm and to protect justice. In Romans 13, Paul says that rulers are not to be a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. There is to be a sense of retributive justice to limit evil and wickedness. 
This is what we should be praying for as you receive your ballots. We should be praying, as Paul calls us in 1 Timothy, for our authorities so that they might govern us in a way that produces peace. And so I say this to say that this text is a gospel politic, not a general politic. This text is not exclusive and exhaustive as it relates to how our courts should act, how our justice system should function, or if we should have a military to defend or not. This text is after how gospel kingdom people interact with real world trials. And you notice because earlier in the book of Luke, Roman soldiers came to John the Baptist asking what repentance would look like. And what John didn't say is, in the kingdom of God, there is no use for defenses and retributive violence and carrying a big stick. Therefore, you should quit. That's what repentance would look like. No, because in this world, there is a place for things like that. Instead, what he gets after is their heart. He says, do not extort anymore by the power of your strength. Do not be a fear monger anymore. By the sword you carry on your belt. Be content with your wages. What's the main point of this preface remark? It's that this text is not to govern the corporate halls of Congress. It is meant to govern the heart of believers. This is a text you don't apply primarily with your ballot, primarily in your political preference. This is a text you apply to your heart by the blood of Jesus, knowing that there is a kingdom which will one day be yours. But right now we live in this world. Second, Point of preface, this is a submission to God message. This will be supremely clear by the end of this passage, but Jesus makes it clear in his opening statement. Listen with me to verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. If you catch the gist of this, we will only be able to love our enemies to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for those who abuse us if we have a God big enough and powerful enough to be prayed to. That is, if we have a God worthy of our prayer. This text is not calling you to love what is hateful, to call as good what is evil, to ignore injustice, or to blindly forgive and forget. It's calling you at the end of the day to trust God alone to vindicate the good and to punish the evil. And this is a safe place to be. Look at how God himself speaks of this in Isaiah 61 verse eight. What is the heart of the God that we serve? For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. God is faithful and covenantal even to judge. Why? Because he loves justice and he hates robbery and harm. God isn't asking for us to call evil good. He is not wanting you to get rid of justice. He's just asking that at the end of the day, you would trust the one who hates evil, injustice, and oppression far more than you ever could to trust that he is the one who is finally, ultimately, and inevitably going to justly punish evil and reward what is good. And this submission allows us the freedom of praying real prayers. A weak prayer life cannot apply this text. A simple prayer life cannot apply this text. God doesn't want boilerplate trite prayers. Read the Psalms. This week, if you have community group, I want you to stand up and read David's psalm, read his prayer in Psalm 109 and see how that's accepted. See what it's like to stand up and pray that your enemies might die childlessly. (laughs) And just see if that sounds like how you pray. David in the Psalms prays for the destruction of his enemies. But the difference is he's asking that God would be the one who does that. That God would be the one who punishes and the one who, dicks, who, who doles out punishment so that David doesn't have to be that one. That David might acknowledge the real suffering, the real sorrow, the real pain, the real wrong and say, that is not for me, that is for the Lord. There's a movie franchise out right now which is like four or five movies long at this point and it's popular because it's basically an entire series of films where the entire plot of the film is one guy fighting off and destroying all of his enemies endlessly for movie on movie on movie. 
And you know why this process started? Because someone killed his dog. And then he took vengeance into his own hands. And as soon as he vindicated himself once, that brought up another enemy. And that enemy brought up another enemy. And that enemy revealed the whole syndicate. And that syndicate revealed the whole economy. And now this seemingly endless movie franchise is going because this man thought he would be finding peace and relief by taking vengeance into his own hands. And what is exciting in a movie is exhausting in real life. You cannot vindicate yourself. You cannot properly execute justice without any consequences because you are not God. You are flawed. He is not. We are weak. He is strong. We are imperfect. He is perfect. God will judge the evil. Second Peter actually tells us that God is delaying in history so that more people might be saved. And yet in the midst of that pause, God is faithful to still judge and punish the wicked. God's love does not come at expense of his justice. This message that we read today depends on a God who is powerful, willing, and able to judge. A God who cares about harm. And this brings relief to us who can pray to that God, trusting him with the state of our emotions. My final point of preface is this, is that this is a wisdom message. The ESV translates the Greek word eparezo as abuse in verse 28. Other translations render the same word as mistreatment or threaten. And all of these are good descriptions of a word. All of them are faithful translations. But the problem with the word abuse we have in our text today is just that abuse in our culture is no longer a broad term. It is now a narrow term used to describe specifically domestic, physical, sexual, emotional, verbal abuse. This narrow sense of the word is not Jesus's primary intent here, even though the heart response of verse 28 of praying and bringing our experience to God ought to be the same. We cannot offer comfort to those in situations of abuse where we cannot also lead them to a God who himself hates abuse and cares about the harm that is caused by sin. This text isn't saying that if you're abused, you should continue to keep silent and stay in a dangerous place. In the same way, it's not saying that if you've been robbed on the street by a pickpocket, you should go to your house, get all of your possessions, find that pickpocket and get everything back to them. He's not saying that we must give to everyone who begs of you, that if you are on the street and someone asks you for a dollar, you go and you get your emergency savings account and you drain that to give that back to that person. Why? Because that would be unwise. Jesus is after your heart in all of these situations. He's after primarily the radical reorientation of your first response in the heat of the moment. Jesus here is the source of true wisdom and Jesus's true wisdom doesn't negate the rest of wisdom that God has given us in scripture. In a little bit in the book of Luke, Jesus will share the story of the good Samaritan and Jesus never calls the Samaritan good. He doesn't say, guys, I'm gonna tell you the story of a good Samaritan. He buries the punchline and leaves it up to us and we know he's good, but it would be a different thing if Jesus shares the story and said, once upon a time, there was a man walking down the road who stumbled upon three thieves beating up this Jew. And the man stood there, waited for the thieves to finish assaulting and robbing this individual, and then went and cared for the individual and then bought him a safe hotel room. We would hardly qualify that as the good Samaritan. It's natural. The Bible often talks openly about how you are to respond when you see others being oppressed and mistreated. When we witness these things in our neighborhood, in our home, in our church, and in our world, we are to be people of action. But Jesus here is after your response to your mistreatment in the moment. And part of our right response is to be wise with the whole corpus of biblical wisdom. In fact, the book of Proverbs touches on every person we encounter in this text. It says, flee the fool, flee the scoffer, Flee the angry person. 
Flee the person who's always asking for money. Flee the abuser. Flee the hater. This text isn't calling anyone to sit in the abuse. It's calling you to respond in that moment with a biblical love that defers judgment to God and yet seeks to apply the rest of wisdom in all of the moments which follow. Jesus is spending time teaching us this because we need to be taught. You see, this text, these few verses we look at here, are not writing on a wall that we can now turn to in every experience in life. We could say, where does this show up in this passage? It will tell me what to do. That's not how biblical wisdom works. Biblical wisdom isn't a writing on the wall. Biblical wisdom is the flashlight which illuminates the whole world in a new light. That we might then see, knowing what we know in the gospel, seeing everything clearly for what it is, how might we live with gospel-shaped wisdom? So those are three uh, introductory remarks to this text that help us as we look at our first main point today, which is a humble view of self. If we want to have gospel-shaped love, we must have a humble view of self. Read with me Luke 6, verses 27 through 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. In 1971, a black pastor by the name of John Perkins visited a jail to go and visit some of his parishioners who had been arrested when they crossed a county line on their way home from a nonviolent protest. When he arrived to the police station, officers came out and handcuffed Reverend Perkins and said, the sheriff will come out in a moment and he'll explain to you what's going on and we could go from there. But instead what happened is the entire precinct came out of that police office and physically assaulted John Perkins for an extended period of time. He specifically recounted in his memoir that I saw evil, the evil of racism in the eyes of those white folk. As he was driven to the hospital, hatred grew in his heart. He was convinced to never look a white man in the eyes again. Yet he arrived at the hospital. It was a white doctor and white nurses, the same skin color that just victimized him which were the same skin color of the ones who are now healing him. In that room, he prayed to God. He said if he ever got out of that hospital room, he would, quote, preach a gospel that would save both blacks and whites together. Our world loves these stories. We celebrate this kind of love. But look at your clothes. We live in a world where if you vary from, diverge from, or differ from your specific sides, talking points, ideologies, or identity markers, you are permanently canceled or banished forever. But here's a man who is nearly beaten to death, who is not only overcome with love, it didn't just change his inward things, but it changed his ex external things. He sought to do good by preaching one gospel which had the effect to save not only his black mistreated compatriots, but to save whites alongside together with him. The ones who hated him, he was going to preach a gospel which could save them. We might admire this. We might long for this inside the church. We might want this kind of conviction, but do you understand the context in which this clarity came? Devastating humility. Physical humiliation. John Perkins did not die in that hospital room, but his pride did. In a world of instant villainization, public vindication, and personal gratification, we will never be able to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, or to lend to those who would take from us, unless we have an encounter with the gospel which kills our pride. When we look soberly at gospel love, it is offensive to the world 
because it is offensive to the world's view of self. Gospel love looks different because gospel-shaped people view themselves differently. Consider and see if you could pick a theme that the Apostle Paul says in a similar, on a similar point in Romans 12, beginning in verse 14, where he says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul, the one who was a persecutor of the church, now applies the same principles of Jesus. But did you notice what was there in the middle? Never be wise in your own sight. This same portion of this text in Romans, Paul opens with this word in Romans 12, verse three. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What do we see? First of all, we see the more we grow in faith, the more clearly we see ourselves. The more measure God has given to us, the more we are able to measure our own status. Now don't we understand more clearly what Jesus means when he says this, the golden rule in Luke 6, 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Do you see the humility this requires? When we think whatever you want to do or do to others as you want them to do to you, we don't think of ourselves as the wrongdoer do we? We think of ourselves as the one who is good and therefore worthy of being treated differently. I deserve better than this, is how we typically encounter that phrase. Therefore, you deserve to treat me better. But do you see what's happening in this text? Do you see what stands on the other side of verse 31? It's as if Jesus is saying, what if you were the hater? What if you were the enemy? What if you were the beggar? What if you were the thief? What if you were the scoffer, the cursor, or the angry man? In those moments, how would you want to be treated? You see, we are motivated here to love our enemies because it is only the Christian who understands that on account of our sin, we will at times painfully and woefully so become the enemy. We will be the one who mistreats. We will be the one who wrongs. We will be the one who harms Look what James says about our own hearts in James chapter three in the first part of verse two. For we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. We all sin. We cannot love sinners until we ourselves realize that we have been and will continue to be, apart from God's grace, the enemy. And this is the basis of Christian charity. If you've read in the King James, the King James translation translates the noun love as charity. I feel like it's a really helpful dynamic for us to understand what love looks like. Christian charity begins by realizing that we are simultaneously the ones called to give charity and we are simultaneously the ones who often need charity. And this is where we see one of the most defining marks of Christian love. It's an elective love. It's not a falling love. It's not a fickle love. It's a choosing love. Husbands, when you're at work and you see a wife or you see a woman who's more attractive than your wife, how do you love her? Wives, when you wake up in the morning and you realize that you're just not in love with your husband that morning, he snored too loud, he didn't do the dishes yesterday, or maybe it's been more couch time and less... Treadmill time. <laughs> Shelly. 
how much you love them. How can you love your enemy when everything about your enemy is unwilling and unworthy of love? Jesus' answer is simple. You elect to love them. You choose to love them. You see, a biblical theology of love includes emotions, but it's based off of our choice. Jesus isn't saying, love people when it's easy. He's saying, love them when it's hard. We can speak by the power of God's grace into our emotions by saying, as God has chosen to love me, I will choose to love others. We love others because we know that others will need to choose to love us. There's nothing more fear-producing and paranoid than thinking there's an economy of love based exclusively off of your performance. That is a devastating relationship to be in. And for Christians, Christian love is a love that reaches beyond performance and loves others because God loved us irrespective of our own performance. He loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were the scoffers and haters. This is why it is not only a sober view of self which sets apart Christian love, but it is chiefly a clear view of salvation which sets apart Christian love. This is our third point this morning, a clear view of salvation. We love others not only because we all find ourselves in need of love from others, but we love others because each and every one of us has found ourselves in need of mercy from God. Read with me Luke 6, 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Our world loves the privilege of patents. How many times have you been told, buy this product because we have a patented technology which sets it apart from everything else? Well, what is the patent of Christian love we see in this text? What separates Christian love from everything else? It's the experience believers have with God the Father through Jesus the Son. This produces a distinction in our value systems. Christians love differently because they've been loved differently. The experience Christians have causes us to love different people for different reasons than the world does. Jesus says sinners love those who love them. Sinners do good to those who have the ability to do good in return. Sinners lend to those who are willing and able to give back exactly what was lended to them. Sinners invite people over to dinner which you would want them to reciprocate invite you over to their house. Sinners do all of those things. But Jesus asks a profound question here. And he asks it three times. It comes up in, in, in two different words in the ESV, which is unfortunate because it's the same Greek word. But he, he says it. Did you see what it is? What benefit is it to you? What credit is it to you? What credit is it to you if you only give to those who are able to give back? This is a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's of huge credit. <laughs> it's of huge benefit. There's no risk. It's only reward. I don't have to worry about loving someone who's not going to love me in return. I don't have to worry about extending my efforts to do good to someone who's not going to reciprocate that goodness. I don't have to worry about losing money by seeming generous when I know that generosity is going to come back to me. Our world rewards those who give to those who can reciprocate. It's not costly. It is of benefit. In fact, in our world today, it is more costly to love our enemy, to bless those who hate you, and to give to those who can give nothing back. You see, when the shift of culture moves away from terms and understandings that have long been popular, 
and helpful, there's, there's ramifications. When we talk about the doctrine of sin in our world, it's not because we just like categories and names, but it's because that has an effect. When we lose a corporate category of sin, that is that sin is anything evil in heart or action that is against the God of this world, we actually view people differently. Without a category of sin, we encounter people as problems which need to be eliminated instead of individuals able to be and in need of redemption. When we lose the category of sin, life becomes a zero-sum game. If we want peace, threats must be purged, defilement must be purified, and enemies must be eradicated. That means that when we attempt to reach out with affection instead of aggression, it is actually a threat to progress. It is causing things to look more diverse, to be more different. Interestingly, if you look sociologically at what is the far left and the far right, they are predominantly white, educated, and wealthy. Our world, despite its talking points, wars against diversity and differences. Biblical love flies in the face of all of that. And when we live like that, even though we seem to walk under the banner of love and unity that the world wants, you will be seen as odd and different. But our reward, Jesus says, our credit is of a different nature. We don't live to be affirmed by the world or paid back by those we love. Our benefit is of a different source. Look at Luke 6, verse 35. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is nothing short of beautiful gospel logic. Did you catch it here? Only the creator God can say something like this. Give and expect nothing in return and enjoy the great reward you get in return. (laughs) That's what he says. Don't expect anything in reward, but great is your reward. What is that reward? Did you see it in this text? The reward is you will be sons of the most high. This word is if we sat down and we read Luke from Luke 1 verse 1 through here, this is a glaring neon light for us to notice. This is the second time Luke has used this word and we encounter this phrase. The first time we encounter it is when the angel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verses 31 and we read this. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of of the most high. What is the reward of loving people in a countercultural, costly way? The reward is that you are loved by God himself in the same way God the Father loves the Son. We are loved by God the Father with the same love God has for the Son. We get, not by our performance, but by Jesus' performance, the same title, the same standing, the same relationship. In other words, we love in costly ways, not because we want the reward of sinners. We love in costly ways because if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have already been rewarded with the love of God. You have everything you've ever needed. We don't fear, we don't give fearing we'll be left with nothing. We don't do good, anxious, if that good will ever return back to us. Why? Because by the blood of Jesus, we are children of the Most High. We have a Father who loves us. We have a God who accepts us. We have a spirit who fills us. We have a promise of life everlasting. We have true hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look forward to a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We are loved with a love that was everlasting and eternal. We have fellowship that neither height nor depth nor past nor presence nor angels nor powers nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what is that love Fueled by mercy. Look again at Luke 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Now, 
I hated grammar. I still hate grammar, but grammar is important here. We need grammar to rightly understand this because our heart is really prone to do this. We read this and we say, God is unkind to those ungrateful, evil losers. And so we think to ourselves, we say, we need to be kind to them because God will be kind to them. But that's not what it says. It says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Well, who is the the? What's that a stand-in for? It's a stand-in to the you who are now sons of the most high. God is saying, be generous to your enemy, not because your enemy needs God's kindness. He's saying, you be kind to your enemy because you were the enemy. You were the ungrateful one. You were the problem. You see, there's a big difference between mercy and grace. Our culture has no problem with grace. Grace is just getting something you don't deserve. It's unmerited favor. It would be gracious of me to buy all of you in here lunch. You came in here not expecting it. You did nothing to deserve it. Here is lunch. You could go eat Panera afterwards. You're welcome. We could say that was really gracious, but we wouldn't say that was merciful. Because grace is the receipt of something you didn't deserve. And mercy is the withholding of something you do deserve. Mercy is a stay of whatever is just. It's circumventing what you worked hard to actually earn. God's kindness to us was that he gave mercy to our ungrateful and evil hearts. And yet he didn't ignore the wrong. He didn't ignore the evil of our sin. He didn't ignore the violent hatred in our own hearts. He didn't wipe ungratefulness under the rug. Instead, this ruling, reigning father poured out all of that deserved vindication, deserved wrath, retribution, and justice on the very man who spoke these very words. It is revolutionary for us to apply this text. What's more revolutionary is that Jesus is the one who makes this text true. Jesus was the one who is going to give mercy to sinners where we would not get the punishment we deserved because Jesus was going to take that punishment in himself. Jesus was not going to ignore the evil and brutal nature of our sin, but he was going to become it for us. You see, our world can't love like this because our world has no mechanism for true mercy. Without a sovereign God, Any mercy we give out is mercy apart from justice. Because that we can't imagine to our enemies loving them, doing good to them, and lending to them because they really did something wrong. You see, the truth is, all of our hearts are wired for justice. And what our world shows is that if we have to choose between justice and love, we choose justice. We always will. And the only way we can get from justice, that is you getting what you deserve, or me saying that evil really happened, that harm really suffered, that abuse really landed, the only way we can get from that camp to the camp of love is the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the mechanism of mercy which acknowledges evil, acknowledges depravity, acknowledges pain and violence and abuse and mistreatment and hatred and says, my savior paid the punishment for that. And I have been won back. Just before Christmas, uh, a lady ran into my car. It wasn't my fault. I got out and I interacted with the woman and I saw her, she was clearly shaken. And I was also upset as I watched her careen across this parking lot to slam into my car. And yet, in God's Holy Spirit kindness, it's not my general personality. My response was, are you okay? Are you all right? This is like the day before Christmas. And I'm like, don't let this ruin your Christmas. Let's exchange numbers. Let's make sure you're all right. And I want you to not deal with this for like three days. Like get through the holidays. You're okay. I'm not upset with you. We're gonna get through this. Now in that moment, it's not that she didn't hit my car. It's not that there was no damage. It's not that I wanted to pay for that damage. It's just that I knew there was a mechanism in place 
with insurances and authorities and police officers that would deal with all of that. And because I knew that justice would be upheld, that costs would be doled out where they needed to be doled out, I was freed to give myself to loving kindness. This is why worldly love is always limited. It wants love, but it can't solve justice. But we are children of mercy. We are a distinct place of love for we can hold everything in tension at the cross that pins our world to its place. We love because we have first been loved. We love because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when you look at your clothes, what are you wearing? Let us cast aside false assurances of naked fabrics. Let us understand with clear humility our sin and the size of grace and let us love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the cross applies real love so that we can love those who, like us, are hostile enemies, haters, abusers, mistreaters, and rebels. Lord, I pray you give us a sober view of self by giving us a sober view of the cross. I pray that even today, as we log on to social media, as we turn on the news, as we open our newspapers, or as we walk into relationships of true conflict in our lives, that we might be able to treat people differently while still acknowledging the weight, problem, and reality of sin. And we thank you that nothing explains our experience as clearly as the cross does. An experience that says love is needed, sin is serious, and Jesus is the one who resolves the sin and brings us into love. We pray all this in your name. Amen.